You're listening to Satellite Sisters. What's a satellite sister? The person you call when the best thing in your life happens or the worst. The person that gets you up, gets you going, and gets you through. And every once in a while, changes your mind. This podcast is part pep talk, part weekly check-in. Like grabbing coffee with a friend. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the Satellite Sisterhood. You're listening to Satellite Sisters. I'm Leanne Dolan in Los Angeles. I'm a writer and producer. I'm married. I've had two college-age boys, and I'm here with my sister, Liz. I'm Liz Dolan. I am a uh, corporate executive, former corporate executive, whatever. I live in Santa Monica, California with my little dog, Hooper. Hi, I'm Julie Dolan. I live in Dallas, Texas, but I've lived and traveled all over the world. I'm an empty nester and an urban nana. Okay. All right. And look I'm... at that. We're 38 seconds in, Leanne. I know that based on my timer. <laughs> well, Liz, we, we got to get going because we have a lot happening in the so show full. today. Uh, Allison Singh G is coming in. We're very excited that she's here. She's the author of our Satellite Sisters book club pick, Where the Peacocks Sing. And she's going to talk to us about her wonderful, delightful, charming memoir. It was delightful. It just takes you to India and Hong Kong. And it made me hungry. I'm so hungry. <laughs> I so <laughs> except hungry. for that roast duck she made. I yeah. don't want any of that. <laughs> it's very true. So we are going to talk to her. Uh, Julie has Tuesday trends. We always love that here at Satellite mm-hmm. Sisters. Oh, I've got a big one. Are you feeling tense, nervous? I have just the thing for you. Okay. Since yeah, for like the last eighteen months. So that's fantastic. <laughs> Great. <laughs> All right, we have an entertaining sisters. Liz, we didn't get to the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary last week, but we swear we're going to yes, get to it. We're going to get to it today. Okay. That's a must-see. And uh, and coming up, I mean, you went to see the cast of The Americans. It was the season finale. Yes. The, the series, series finale. finale. Series right. finale. So I have season. some behind-the-scenes, you know, a semi-spoiler alert, but not a lot. But if you want to know what was the cast saying about the series finale moments after the finale, I was there. And I will report back on my findings. All right. But first— Of course you were, Liz. You're always <laughs> in the big spots, big times, but— me, I just, I just have kind of a regular life in Dallas. And can I, can I start with my dilemma this week, sisters? Something trivial and small, sure. because that's the way I like to roll. Okay, this week I, I just, you know, had a busy schedule, and I just had to dash into Trader Joe's. Uh, now, Trader Joe's is a, a, a grocery store. You have them all on the West Coast. Uh, we have them in Dallas. I think they're all over the country now, right? Yeah. I'm yes. pretty yeah. sure. They, uh, they have branches all over. But you can imagine this. You're really tight on your schedule. I need one thing. I need bib lettuce. I need a bag of bib lettuce. I'm just going to, I pull in, I run in, I grab a bag, and I go to the checkout lines. But you know the thing at Trader Joe's is for some reason they pride themselves in having people that work at Trader Joe's that feel it's necessary to engage you in conversation. Do you know what yeah, I'm talking about? Know, like when you go there, they always ask you, well, how's your day going? Yeah, what are your uh, weekend and they really, plans? And they really want to know, you know, it's not like, it's not like, hello, how are you? And they start, you know, it's not like Safeway or Tom Thumb here in Dallas. In Trader Joe's, they really want to have a conversation with you. Yeah, yeah. it's too much for uh, me. But. Because of that, Leanne, you will you will attest to this, that because they're chatting with the customers in the checkout line, it's unbearably slow, right? Yes. Is it, it a it slow? Just, yeah. It's a, yeah. Plus, they, they don't, you, you sort of have, they used to be the Trader Joe's ethos was that you bagged your own stuff. 
I mean, Trader Joe's literally started in South Pasadena. Groceries for the people. We have the original Trader Joe's. And in the Joe original worked at yours? Trader Joe's parking lot, which is a nightmare. But, like, that was the ethos. Like, you were sort of, it was almost like a food co-op, that you were all in this together. And so they haven't really got on the bag. People don't bag anymore, and that slowed down the whole thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so okay, here's my situation. So I grab the bag of prepared bib lettuce. I head to the checkout line, and it's five deep in every single line. Okay, so I know that's going to be like 10, 15 minutes to just buy a bag of lettuce. So I was like, I don't have time to do this. I am rushing back to the refrigerated case to put the bagged lettuce back. And as I'm do that, as I'm doing that, I run into one of the Trader Joe's employees and he said, whoa, what's going on? And I said, (laughs) I think they're crew members. I think they're crew members, Jill. (laughs) The crew crew members, the crew member really wants to know. (laughs) I was like, well, I needed just some bag lettuce, but I don't have time to stand in this line. So I'm putting my lettuce back. And he was and the crew member said, well, just take it. I said, what do you mean? Just take it. He said, just take it. I said, are you kidding? No, are you? Was this person wearing a badge? Are you certain? They were an employee. He, he was wearing one of those tropical print shirts. He had a name tag on. He was uh, lining up um, avocados. He said, just take it. I said, but you're a store. I'm not supposed <laughs> to just take it. He said, yeah, just take it. <laughs> so, Wow. What, we, what would you have done? Would you have just taken it, left the store? 100%. I would have just taken it. Really? You yeah. No way. And then I would have paid the next time I was there. Like, hey, last time I was here, this is what happened. You probably spend thousands of dollars a year at Trader Joe's. It's one bag of lettuce. Just take it. (laughs) I know. I would be too afraid of getting busted and then having to explain that some guy back there in the avocado department told me I could. By then, he's disappeared because he's not really an employee. He's just masquerading as an employee and coming in and stealing his own food. So, no, I I would not have done it. I could not do it. I I just felt too uncomfortable. And I felt felt really... um, I felt for the people that were standing in line that I'm just grabbing free lettuce and <laughs> and dashing out of the store. So the lettuce cost $1.99. So I took $2 out of my purse and I gave it to the guy in the, in the avocado department. Oh, okay. That's, That's a good yeah. solution. Yeah. Yes. But I don't know if he's going to put that in the till not or your problem. If he was just going to put it in his pocket. It's not your problem. But it really threw me off. Free lettuce. I couldn't <laughs> handle it. Can you imagine the grocery store free for all, though, if you could just like pay the person in the aisle? Like, what? That's not good. That's, we're just going to continue to devolve as a culture. I think you have to imagine that the guy is looking at Julie. Okay, it's yes. not just random people walking in. It's Julie. Solid citizen. He's, he's checking Julie out, and he's assessing that she probably does thousands of dollars worth of business at Trader Joe's. Okay. And maybe All that right. lettuce had, like, one one last day on, on the before it expired. <laughs> just take the lettuce. Just, just take it. Just take it. It's free. Yeah. Okay. So go ahead, go ahead and try that next time you're in Trader Joe's. No. See how far you get. No. I totally would. I mean, if someone told me, I would take it. I, mean, I would take it. Okay. Well, you feel strongly about just all kinds of behavior in the grocery store. Yeah. So you've thought all of that. Right. Through. Well, I've not me. Right. I hardly buy anything at grocery stores. <laughs> okay. So I just would not feel like it was right. <laughs> but I think the leave two bucks on the counter, I might have done. Maybe not yeah. hand it to the guy, but here you go. Just slap it down as you're running out the door. Well, that would create chaos. <laughs> that is not helpful. That's yeah, that, no that wouldn't help at all, Liz. That's really? That would, yeah. that would make everybody who's standing in line mad. really mad. 
Like okay. you're just jumping the line. See, as you see? can see, I just do not understand grocery store yeah. ethos. Like every once in a while you get to your car and you're like, oh, sh- I forgot the laundry detergent underneath. Uh-huh. And you had that discussion. Oh, you like, Should I go yeah. back? So the next time I say, hey, last time I was here, I, I grabbed an all. I forgot to pay. Okay, modern-day moral dilemmas. We tackle it all here at Satellite Sisters. Uh, Moving on. Speaking of moral dilemmas, I know it was almost a week ago, and maybe much later if you are listening to this in, say, 2020. uh, But we really must discuss the Americans finale. And I do this by popular demand from the Satellite Sisters Facebook group, which, if you haven't joined, just what are you waiting for, people? Um, So in the lead-up to the Emmy Award nominations... The television networks and the studios do screenings of key episodes, and then they bring out the cast and the showrunners to talk about the show, and then they give you some kind of reception with themed food and drinks, and I am an Emmy voter because I was formerly a television executive. Somebody just asked me in the office here, like, how long does that last for? Like, when do they pull my voting privileges? Never. That's the good thing about TV. They <laughs> really? Don't, you, never? Yeah, never. You as long as... Just- as long as I keep re-upping my membership in the Academy, Julie, it's not nearly as prestigious as being in the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, where you have to qualify. No. Television, it's the democratic medium. Anyway, so I was so last Wednesday night was the Emmy screening for the Americans. And they also very cleverly scheduled it on the night of their series finale. So not only uh, did we get to see the finale several hours before anyone else on the West Coast. But the whole cast was there, as well as the two showrunners, to answer questions afterwards. And, you know, and I got this great gift, okay? Uh, You're going to have to visualize it. I'm shaking it here. This is the picture I posted in the Satellite Sisters Facebook group. The Russian nesting dolls I got. And, Julie, you know the official word for this in Russian. The matryoshka. The matryoshka. Yeah. Okay. So I got the matryoshka, like the first one, the big one on the outside, Elizabeth Jennings. You open it. You get Philip Jennings. You open that. You get, you know, Stan Beeman, FBI FBI agent. agent. And then you open that and you get Margot Martindale, Claudia, KGB (laughs) handler. She's she's in the inner innermost circle of the uh, of the dolls. Anyway, so we watched it. Then the cast came up and people on the Facebook group asked me like, so what did I hear there? Like that I, that they wouldn't have known. So I have a couple of highlights about uh, what went on in the room. Is this where we give the spoiler alert? Oh, spoiler alert. Yes. Okay. We are, we're, we're not going to give away key turning points in the finale or the series, but you may learn things you don't already know if right. you haven't watched the finale or even if you haven't watched, say, the final season or or the Americans ever. <laughs> so, right. Well, you know. I mean, I guess we want to recommend to all listeners that they watch the series and watch it from the beginning because yes. it, it is a remarkable series. So well written, acted, everything about that. Uh, we, we will try hard not to spoil the ending. In preparation for this podcast, we did spoil the ending for Liam, didn't for me, we? yes. Sorry. As pitching this story, you totally, I said, are there going to be spoilers? And right away, you told me the ending. And I'm, I was I'm like, so okay, sorry. well, but let's we not... learned our lesson, Liam. Yeah. Okay, so we will try very hard in this discussion 
not uh, not to ruin it for others. Yeah, but if you're on season two and you want to fast forward 10 minutes in this podcast, you could do that too. Yes, you could do that too. So Lori said she wanted me to tell us simple folk who had to watch it alone on your own TV. Bonnie said her husband Dave is super jealous and, yes, thinks that, you know, Stan's wife was definitely a spy. That was one of the questions they posted. And we never found out the answer to that. So, you know, there you go. And Marie-Jean. <laughs> I didn't even know it was a question. So okay. thanks so much. <laughs> well, well Liam, there's totally some just cover your ears for no, the next 10 minutes. I've, and Liz and I will talk amongst right. ourselves. I've accepted this. So just let's go. We've told everyone who doesn't okay. want to listen not okay, to Okay, so here so. we go. Here are just a couple of my takeaways from the actual session with the cast. First of all, Matthew Reese. Speaking in his Welsh accent absolutely freaks me out, you know, because he's he's Welsh. Yeah. He's from Wales. Yeah. And uh, not something you would guess on the show. Philip is a Russian masquerading as an American. He speaks Russian very well. He speaks American very well, but also in real life speaks Welsh. So it's just a shocker every time every time you hear that with him in an interview. Next, you know, he's a couple in real life with Carrie Russell. Yes. And, That's nice. Yeah, it's yeah. very nice. Uh and Carrie was super, like, loose and fun in the session, which is just the opposite of Elizabeth Jennings. Oh, I just that's true. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes so Elizabeth Jennings could not be less loose or less fun. But interestingly— Okay, Liz, here's the big question I want to know. Is Carrie Russell's hair as gorgeous as it, as it is in the series? <laughs> well, she looked beautiful. I Just in okay. general, I th- just think she's such a, an attractive, lovely person. You're right. She has excellent hair. Right. But— um, I wasn't close enough to give you a full-on read of that. It was a theater full of people. But what I did learn about Carrie Russell is she said she never watches the finished episodes. Like she said, I've done it already. I know what I've done. I don't actually watch the show. So sitting in the audience with her cast members and us watching the finale, she said was the first time she's watched an episode completely through. And she really enjoyed it. (laughs) So I isn't even, that interesting? I, I don't believe that. You don't? No. But move on. I okay. mean, I'm just saying that seems impossible to me. Yeah. That as an actress over hundreds of episodes, yeah. you could you not wouldn't have, have just watched once just to because you're not in every scene. Yeah. Oh well, whatever. I mean, it's I know. Like, I, do you ever have episodes of this show that you don't listen back all the way through to? Yeah, but I listen. I've listened. I've not never listened. <laughs> That's right. You're present for all parts of this show. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just I'm, telling you what she said, Leah. Okay. She said she's just like all right, uncomfortable watching herself, but she and most of all, she wanted to communicate that she enjoyed watching the finale with her castmates. Okay. That that was a very special moment, and she was laughing and lighthearted the whole time. Now, the actor who plays Stan Beeman, the FBI agent, his name mm-hmm. is Noah Emmerich. Yeah, and Again, this is not spoiling it. That scene in the garage, like, if he doesn't get an Emmy for that, Julie, I just don't know what. It was was amazing. It was a really, I mean, yeah, the finale is an incredible episode. And that, that's, there were so many wonderful scenes, but that was an amazing scene. Okay, but he explained what it was like to prep. They're all like, they're all acting out of their minds in terms of the quality (laughs) of the acting, the tone they create in each of these scenes, to me was just so compelling. So he said, he talked a lot about what it was like to prep for that key garage scene. And because all the way working on it, they had been sending him drafts of the script. And uh, but then that morning, he said he woke up and he just wanted to get it done. Like he knew it was really key. And that scene took 
11 hours to shoot, believe it or not. 11 wow. hours they were standing there. And and he said it was, they all said, all four of them in that scene said it was super intimate because it was really just the four of them standing in that garage for 11 hours. And there's not much movement, right? So the script right. changed many times over a month. and uh, But the actual scene, the way it unfolds, it's just super tense and nobody moves. <laughs> and just imagine. Yeah, whole, I mean, the whole series is tense. And then they went to like a new degree a new, of yes. tension. This was the, like DEFCON, yeah. whatever. So then the showrunners, the two guys who create the show, they jumped in. And here's what they said. They said they knew that the whole scene really depended on Stan's pivot, shall we call it, being believable. That uh-huh. he had to make it believable that he would do that. Which meant the whole episode depended on that, that you had to believe that Stan would do that, which meant the whole season depended on that, which actually meant the entire series came down to believing that one scene. Like if you did not believe that Stan Beeman would do that, then the whole thing was just for naught. That's what the showrunners felt. So then Noah Emmerich was like, yeah, no pressure. No (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) So I thought that was very interesting, just how critical it was that you had to believe that even going back to episode one, season one, would that guy have gotten here in this moment? So I enjoyed that. One actor who was not there, who was one of my favorites in the whole series, Oleg, the, the Russian guy, and we won't tell you how he ends up, but he had been in D.C. and then goes back to Moscow and then comes back to D.C. Uh, he's an actor named Costa Ronan, and he was not there, but I just want to give him a shout out because I thought he was awesome. Margot Martindale plays their KGB handlers, and so she was talking about how the best scene partner in the world is Carrie Russell, that she had all those great scenes yeah. with Elizabeth. And then someone on stage, well, said, what about Frank Langella, who was her scene partner for like the first five, (laughs) for the first five um, uh, seasons, right? So he was the other KGB handler. And she took this total dig at Frank Langella. She's like, oh, yeah. Oh, it was great working with Frank. It's just so fun to be with him and hear his endless stories about himself. So everyone in the cast laughed at that. (laughs) Little behind the scenes on Frank Langella. Uh, and then I'll just end with two things that surprised me at the actual event. Um, there was no standing ovation at the end. I think the audience was like too stunned yeah, at yeah. what actually happened in the finale. It was so unexpected compared to what you might have guessed. So there was a lot of applause, but no no standing O. What do you think of that, Julie? Do you think they were well, stunned? I. I, I can understand it because that's just watching it at home. That's the way I felt. Yes. I mean, having lived in Moscow for five years, I, I, you know, one of the things that I loved about this series is I just think they did such a, not that I ever really understood Russia or, you know, living there. I mean, I think the more time I spent living in Russia, the less I understood about the place. But I did love in the series how they always presented the Russian point of view about mm-hmm. World War II, about country, about patriotism, about, you know, the sense of family. And so, all you know, all of those themes came through, I think, in this series in a great way. And the final scene, which, again, I'm not giving away, 
is at a spot in Moscow. It's called Sparrow Hills. Liz, you I know when you there. came to visit me, yes. I you you know, we went to visit it and it's where Moscow State University is, but it also has a incredible panoramic view of the whole city of Moscow. And it's also kind of a sentimental place. It is the place now where brides and grooms, young married couples after they get married in City Hall, they go up to Sparrow Hills and they leave their flowers at, at the Statue of Lenin or they take pictures up there. So it has, a, you know, and I just thought that was mm-hmm. such a perfect location for the final scene. So It's like they um, really knew what they were doing. They really did <laughs> know what they were showrunners. doing. Those showrunners, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so somewhat, you know, uh, so I think they captured that really well. So... I mean, it's so interesting to hear, Liz, the behind the scenes, though, of what it was really like to work on that series. Yeah. And then one last thing, which was a surprise at the actual event. I said they have themed food and uh, drinks usually after these screenings. So um, food. T- yeah. Beef stroganoff and potato pierogies. But mm. but no vodka. I was really expecting oh. vodka shots lined up. No, apparently they just decided they weren't allowed too to serve risky. that. Too yeah. Too risky to serve <laughs> too many vodka shots to people in Los Angeles that are all getting in their cars and driving home. So <laughs> excellent event all the way around. Excellent finale. Just wanted to share a little bit of the behind the scenes. There you go. Um, all right. One last thing I want to say before we go to our ad break yeah. is that, you know, you can listen to Satellite Sisters all over the place. So I just want to reinforce, like, we're on Apple Podcasts. We know that many of you find us there. We're also on Stitcher. You can find us on NPR One, sort of back to our roots of public radio days. If you use the NPR One app, you can just enter Satellite Sisters. You can find us there. Spotify is our fastest-growing uh, place to listen to us. So All right. If Spotify. you're listening to us on Spotify, you're among the cool kids because that's that's where all the cool people are. And then the smart speakers. I won't say her name. Yeah. But you know, you can ask her for to listen to Satellite Sisters. But the report we're getting back from you is that you only get the the most recent episode. I know that is, as they say, a known issue. <laughs> And they are working on that. But anyway, lots of places to listen to us, so try that. But the reason I mention it is because these are also great ways to share the sisters. So say you're listening on Stitcher or listening on Spotify, and it's an episode that you particularly love. And you've always been telling your own satellite sisters, hey, you should listen to this show. Boom, from within the app. Why don't you just share the sisters? Just send them the show. Just a little, just a little tip from us. Word of mouth is very important to us. So uh, enjoy and share. I leave you with that thought. Okay. And we always put the links in the show notes, which are at SatelliteSisters.com. If you're, you know, if you didn't get that all jotted down. Right. It's all there. Oh, Liz, you know what else is in the show notes? Okay. Last week I talked about my trip to Rome. I did mm-hmm. a complete report on the podcast. And mm-hmm. then I followed up with an extensive post on the blog about every place I mentioned in Rome. Extensive is the word. What did you say, Julie? Were you I, I want to go to Rome and just use Leon's blog. <laughs> Leon, really well done. Maybe you should write a travel book. Thank you. Who knows? Maybe that will come my way, but I really enjoyed it, and I felt I wanted to share all those places and my tips for our Imperial Rome and Renaissance Rome trip, as well as Pompeii. Uh, it took me a while to get that up. 
So, but you can find that at satellitesisters.com. It's its own separate blog post now. It will connect mm-hmm. to the With article. links and photos and yeah. history. And yeah. It's meaty. I went for it. So if you're headed off to Italy or you just want to do some armchair traveling, do that. You'll... You'll also see a picture I took in the Rome train station of my away bag and my Dagny Dover bag. So <laughs> there you go. Proof. Uh, and next week I'm going to talk about my Paris trip. So I'll give you the rundown there and I'll do the same sort of article for Paris. Paris, I'll include some hotels and some foods because some food because I have some tips on that. But that's coming okay, next we week. Okay, we have that to look forward sisters. to. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, sisters, it's Tuesday, and that means it's time for trends. So I want to first, I, I want you all to take out a piece of paper, pen, pencil, and just may, just jot this down, okay? Because uh-huh. you need to know this, that these are the top 10 objects that you have in your house that your kids, or in your case, Liz, your nieces and nephews, are never, ever going to want, mm-hmm. Okay. Your house is probably chock full of this stuff, and you need to start now getting rid of it because nobody's ever going to take it from you. Okay. Okay? (laughs) All right. Well, I think we all know that brown furniture, forget it. If you have any brown furniture in your life, okay. Really? Kids don't Mm -hmm. want that. Leanne and Liz, you probably have a lot of books. Yeah. Nobody wants books. You can't really? give those away. I mean, you're going to have to start donating them or giving them away right now because uh, your your heirs are not going to want those. Okay. Do you have any sort of collection of papers, maybe some famous documents <laughs> or got nice gift cards or things like that? Nope, yes. Nobody wants that. Like, How about does steam- five years worth of bank statements count? <laughs> Does that count at all as collection of papers? And Liz, your bag of cords, extension cords, yes. you better start right now. Just Power cords are us. Up. Yes. Okay. You got a steamer trunk, a sewing machine, or a film projector? Out. Okay. Oh. Don't save it. Okay. If it's up in your attic, get rid of it. Okay, I predict about- film projectors will come back. That's okay, just a prediction. Leanne, I know you have some of these. Some figurines. Do you have decorations? <laughs> Porcelain figurines, wooden figurines. You do Nobody from mom. Nobody wants some, Leanne. I know Nobody. I from mom. I know yeah. you have, have whole collections yeah. of them, okay? How about Persian rugs? You got any kind of rugs like that? Uh, those are not moving, okay? <laughs> Leon, you know, every Thanksgiving, you set a beautiful table for all of us when we come. And it's you always polish that silver flatware. You put out crystal wine services. You use fine porcelain dinner china. Okay. They don't want that. I know. Nobody's going to take really? it. Nobody's going to take that anymore. Mm. It's really a sad list. I think that's a mistake. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because you could just use the china every day. Like just like it's that's a mistake. That that breaks my heart. In fact, a friend of mine tried to pawn off more silver on me. It was her mother's (laughs) silver. I'm like, I have enough silver. All full up. You know, I was like, save it for your daughter. No, she's not going to want it. Okay. I know. It's it's really kind of sad. It's like the end of the road. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, you know, the end of the road for silver, silver plated things, crystal wine decanters, people don't want that, you know? So you're right, Leon. You should use it every day. Just and use it. Should... Well, who cares if it breaks? Just use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you're those porcelain figurines, put them all out. <laughs> Get them out of the china cabinet. Put them out. <laughs> let your dog knock them over. Okay. <laughs> I'm I gotta let to... the... Yeah. Let toddlers play with them. <laughs> Go ahead. 
I think that's a good idea. It's true. <laughs> it is. But it is. It just made me think, you know, like when you're a young married, you you know, and you have nothing, right? You you spend your whole life accumulating this stuff, you know, and you think it's, I don't know, it's going to make your life Valuable. better or whatever. Yeah. And that you will pass it on to your heirs. They don't want this. Okay. <laughs> None of it. Okay. So yeah. if okay. you have it, maybe send it out, set it, set it free. Okay. Because maybe that's there true. are other people that want some silver service and stuff, but okay. no, you can't, you can't pass it on. Right. I'm and just you know, imagining my, I'm imagining my husband just sawing up all the brown furniture. We have. <laughs> like at the end of his life, just that would, that he would do that. Like he's like, no one wants it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I believe we had to do that with some of mom and dad's furniture. Yes, we, and he just, did. Yeah. Yes, my, he's right. already sawed up a few pieces of mom and dad's that were, quote, very valuable. Yes. That were not no. very valuable. No. Okay. I know. Okay. I know. Good it's, list, Julie. Depressing, but good. Okay. Well, if you're feeling a little down, if you're feeling tense, perhaps, here's a new trend that I, I think we all can get into. Okay. Do you know one of the latest things that, and, and it's good, I think it's one, it's a healthy habit to watch on uh, the internet is power washing videos. What? Yes, that's right. These are just videos, uh, usually without any kind of commentary. Sometimes there's a little music, but it's you're just watching people power wash their sidewalks, their shower tiles, their grills, their decks, and everything in between. And somehow that it's, it's people are finding it very fulfilling to watch dirt disappearing. Oh, you know, it, yeah. is, it is that sense of fulfillment that you but that you don't actually have to do the work. You know, mm -hmm. you probably have things in your life that need some power washing, but you don't have to do that. You can just put on a power washing video and you can just relax. power wash those figurines just power wash the heck out of those figurines that'll break them okay that's I, I interesting like power washing. as kind of a meditative thing yeah i can see that I, yeah. liz it might be good for you okay uh, i know you've done some power washing in your past life I have. Uh -huh. uh, but this you just make it easy on yourself maybe at the end of the day instead of watching those political talk shows just watch a little power washing okay. Thank you, Julie. Excellent suggestion. Okay, now we're moving on to entertaining sisters. We have a uh, you know several entertainment uh, notes we want to pass along. The first is uh, the documentary about Ruth Ga Ruth Bader Ginsburg that's out in theaters now. It's called RBG. I saw it. I recommend. And the Washington Post has even called it already, sisters, the sleeper hit of the summer. You know, I know you saw that story too, Julie. People are right. going to see this movie and they're bringing their friends, their mothers, their daughters. Go see this movie. It's supposed to be very fun and entertaining. I heard the documentarians saying that they didn't want it to be like medicine to watch yeah. this documentary. Yeah. Yeah. They wanted it to be fun and entertaining. Well, I would say a couple of things about it. First of all, there's so much I did not know about her, both personally and professionally. And I think that no matter what your politics this is really a mind and a life and a person who is fascinating and you can admire. Like, okay, we knew that if she went to law school in 1956, she was probably only one of the only women in her class. And it's true. She was one of nine women in her Harvard Law class of 500. 
And she was just constantly hounded, like, why are you taking a place from a man? So whatever. I think we would have guessed that. (laughs) Uh, I think we've often seen in the news that she's an opera buff. She talks about that a lot in the uh, in the documentary. And it's so it's wonderful to hear her speak from her heart about what music means to her. Uh, I think we all know that she was very close pals with Antonin Scalia, yes. which was an unusual kind of combo. So there's there's sections about that. But here's some of the stuff I didn't know. I mean, she's like the hardest woman, working woman in jurisprudence. She barely sleeps. She like goes home. Well, OK, let me start from the beginning. When she was in law school, her husband, Marty, who has since passed away, but they they met in college, were married forever. He got cancer. They were both in law school. So she typed all of his notes and then hers, so helped him finish law school while he had cancer, while she was finishing law school, and when she already had an infant, okay? So that's when she got into the habit of, like, only sleeping a few hours a night. And that's what she still does. She, this woman does, like when you say, oh, she never sleeps. No, she literally never sleeps. <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg never sleeps. Her husband, Marty, he would have to come to her chambers at the Supreme Court and lure her home to even eat dinner. So she would come home. He would make dinner. They would all have dinner together. Then the moment the kids were in bed, she would go back to work. And her kids said she just stayed up all night working. Like if they wandered out at three o'clock in the morning, there she was at her desk, lights on. And her life is pretty much still that way, even though her husband has now passed away. Her kids, once you see this, I would be interested in your opinion on some of the things the kids say, because there's a little bit of that. I mean, don't give it away. Don't give it away. Okay, a little bit of that. not want to see this. But they did keep a notebook called Mommy Laughed to mark down how many times they actually heard their mother laugh. Wow. So, so think about that. Okay, then on the, <laughs> on the professional side, here's where it really counts. So she was unemployable due to her gender, right? She'd, she got out of, she act, ended up graduating from Columbia Law School because her husband moved to New York for his job. Um, top of her class could not get a job. So same she, with Sandra Day O'Connor. Yes. Remember, same deal. Mm-hmm. Right. So she went to work for the ACLU Women's Rights Project, and really her entire history was litigation that was sort of challenging institutionalized gender discrimination. But what was so unique about what she did is she went after the policies that harmed men as well as women. Like there's one case which was very significant where a man was being denied Social Security benefits for his wife because the federal government was saying, well, she wasn't worth anything. You don't get benefits because your wife died, where the reverse obviously is true. So it was it's fascinating to hear. They have audio recordings of her arguments in front of the Supreme Court. Oh, cool. And so they talk a lot about how she framed her arguments to kind of educate the justices on the court at that point felt that gender discrimination wasn't a thing, that it really did not negatively impact women because all oh. of these laws actually protected us. This was all for our for our own good. Oh, okay. Oh, we got it wrong. I we, can't believe that, Liz. Yes, we got it wrong. So, so listening to how she constructed her arguments to educate the nine justices on the court is fascinating. And she actually says at one point, I was a kindergarten teacher. Like, she literally had to convince the Supreme Court that gender discrimination, mm, maybe not such a great thing. So go see it. There's lots more in there. Only two more things I'll say. (laughs) That her mother, who died when she was very young, another thing I didn't know, 
Her mother had two things that she said um, were the most important for Ruth growing up. Number one was be a lady, and number two was be independent. Yeah. And that was the way she rolled. Yes. Continues to roll. Yes. So Very inspiring. It's really, it's a fun movie. It's a serious movie. I think you'll enjoy Sleeper Hit of the Summer. Go see it. <laughs> All right. Oh, one other thing. Do we yeah. have time for my yeah, Eric Bergen note? Yeah, quickly. Okay, so my other Allison. entertainment note was tonight, I thought this was going to be breaking news for the sisters. Yeah. That tonight, Eric Bergen, who plays Blake on the cast of Madam Secretary, uh, is opening as the doctor in the play Waitress. So I was so excited to tell you guys this. On Broadway. On Broadway. Yes, yes. Right. I was excited to tell you guys this because we love Eric Bergen. We love him in Madam Secretary. I've seen Waitress. It's really fun. But then I was listening to your Madam Secretary recap yesterday. Yes. And you discussed this at great length, right at the yes, top we of the did. show. In fact, well, we had to discuss it at great length because Leon didn't believe me, Liz. Right? I know you started uh, bickering. Leon doubted that I had done my homework to find out this was Eric Bergen's Broadway debut. Yes. So there's she bicker- fact checked me in the middle of the podcast, which but rarely okay, happens. I, 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 hold, I hold no grudges about that. <laughs> anyway, congratulations to Eric Bergen. He is, in fact, making his Broadway debut. Tonight in Waitress. Now, they've done some other stunt casting in this show. Jason Mraz played this role for a while. Catherine McPhee played the female lead. When I saw it last year, Sarah Bareilles, who wrote all the music, she was actually playing the lead. So super fun play. If you're headed to Broadway this summer, I think he's in the show through the middle of August. So if you're tempted to see Waitress, see it now. Eric Bergen uh, in the role. Do it. Julie, I stood corrected in the middle of the Madam Secretary recap. I'll apologize again publicly. I'm sorry. I doubt it. <laughs> no, you. you don't need to. He's Leah. famous for Jersey Boys, but he was in the film version. So yeah. there you have it. Um, if you'd like to hear the full argument yes. that Leanne and Julie have yeah. about this, please download Satellite <laughs> Sisters Talk TV and listen to this week's Madam Secretary recap. That's right. We wrapped our, our Madam Secretary recaps for the season with the season finale. We finally got to it. I, I was out of the country and then pretty sick. So uh, it's up there. We're going to take a break. But if you're just tuning in to Madam Secretary on Netflix, they're going to post the next season or the season we just finished pretty soon. All four seasons are up there we start our recaps in season two so you can watch and then listen and watch and listen and then we'll be back in the fall with Dark and with madam secretary exciting yeah very exciting all right before we get to our author allison singji who i think this coming when we come back we're going to have allison singji here to talk about her beautiful book where the peacocks sing it's Leanne and Liz and Julie, and we're so happy to be here with the author of our Satellite Sisters book club pick this month, Where the Peacocks Sing. This maybe has like the greatest subheading ever, A Palace, A Prince, and the Search for Home. Aww. Allison Singji, welcome to Satellite Sisters. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm really excited to speak with you. You know, this book, Allison, it's just so evocative. It's a comic memoir, and some of the lines made me laugh out loud about Mm -hmm. your life as a glamorous expat in Hong Kong, and, you know, you're dating a fabulous British guy who lives in an apartment so big you're literally rollerblading around (laughs) the living room, and then you fall in love with a poor journalist from India, and you travel to his homeland, but Allison, the food, the food, the food you write about, <laughs> did you do that on purpose to make us all starving and want to go get Indian food? Well, funny enough, no, it was just such a part of the journey, you know, obviously going from from 
um, bland, well, somewhat bland American food with, or British food with the expats. And then, of course, there was Chinese food. And then once Ajay came into my, my life, I think one of the bonuses he brought with him is that he was this amazing chef. I mean, he, he learned how to make Indian food, not only from his family and the and the house full of servants, but also... <laughs> just convenient. Yeah. Also a stint in Tokyo where he was working as an illegal sous chef for a story. So he could chop onions like nobody's business. <laughs> I, I like the point in the book where you actually had a shirt made for yourself that said Spice Girl, which... <laughs> So let's just back up a little bit because I think we all really enjoyed this book because it is funny and it is about your whirlwind romance with this journalist. Uh, But it also is very deep because you are searching for home. You grew up in Los Angeles and a Chinese American family. You moved to Hong Kong for a variety of reasons and you find yourself in India, you know, trying to make peace with his mother, his sisters, his way of life, this rundown palace. I'm wondering how you chose to write about this moment in your life? Well, that's a really good question. So so as you know, Leanne, I, I teach memoir writing at UCLA Extension. And I always tell my students um, when they're searching for a time in their life that they're called to, to – uh, write about. Always think about the time when your life changed the absolute most, when <clears throat> when you were in complete flux and everything was flying around you. And so I actually, <clears throat> excuse me, moved to Hong Kong. I mean, my big line in the book is I I moved to Hong Kong to get away from Chinese people, <laughs> <laughs> namely the ones I was related to. <laughs> so that should pretty much set the stage for, you know, I love my family, of course, but of course, like yes. everyone's family, they they drive you crazy until you have to move whatever 7,000 miles away. And um, one of the reasons I moved was because I really was in search of the story of my life. And I knew it wasn't in Los Angeles for some reason. How although, did you know that? I didn't want to write about Los Angeles. Okay. It it for one, some reason it wasn't my earth even though I grew up here. Yeah. Okay. So I want this Rotary fellowship as you know and I could have gone anywhere where I had a working knowledge of the of the language and so I spoke some you know college French, some college Spanish and I was actually going to go to Paris or Barcelona. Sensible. Those are sensible <laughs> yeah, choices. It, it makes very a, common choices. Yeah. <laughs> but I um at the time uh Hong Kong was still a colony. And so the official language was English, and I, <laughs> I spoke that pretty well. So, um, so I decided to go there, and I knew that if I went there, perhaps my whole life could change, and I desperately wanted that. So um, in starting to write this book, um, I realized that it was in Hong Kong that my life wildly transformed, where I was taken out of everything that was comforting to me. And everything was dazzling, but so familiar because I had grown up in a Chinese-American household. And that's when I started to make real sense of my life. You know, the Hong Kong you write about is dazzling. I mean, and that was it was in the 90s. You it know. reminded me of a lot of my business trips to Hong mm-hmm. Kong in the 90s, where it was just so go, go and everything was beautiful and growing. And you you write about like dinners on junks in the harbor and like all the buildings, the you know restaurants at the tops of beautiful buildings and up at the peak. Like a lot of those places I had been in my business life. It was so much fun to read about. Is it still like that? Hong Kong? It, it is. I mean, it's a lot more mainland. I like to describe Hong Kong as like living on a cruise ship. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> For years. And, and, you know, that has its good aspects, but you get a little tired putting on the stilettos and the ball gown at night, you know? 
Which you literally were doing. That's not a metaphor, right? Absolutely. And thank goodness I was there in my 20s because there's no way I could pull that off now. No way. Julie, you lived in Bangkok. Did you have a glamorous expat life? Did stilettos I, I tried, but I couldn't wear those stilettos. But yes, I think, you know, you wrote about being reborn. You said the life of an expat. You said that, you know, for many people, they move to a foreign country and they can be someone that they weren't in the, you know, where that wherever they had grown up. And it so it creates this whole world of people trying to be new things or to be their best selves or to do or to have a do over. Maybe it didn't go well in England, but now they're having a do over in uh, Hong Kong. So I love that part of the book. So did you have the so-called filth in? Um, well, no, you didn't because it's I love Hong that. Kong. So filth is the acronym, as you learned in my book, for failed in London, try Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> And so I was. You know, I failed sure in Los Angeles. Try Hong Kong characters uh, around Bangkok when we were there too. Yeah, but yeah. and yet you have this great guy Nigel. I want to find out what happened to Nigel at the end of the interview. But you strike up this romance with a fellow journalist, and it's all done through letters and emails. It was a shockingly romantic part of this book, Allison. Kind of threw me. Like when he when he uh, proposes to you, I went <gasps> like <laughs> after three months of emails, you're getting married. Yes, you know, I, I think I think in my heart I was looking for an old world man, someone who wasn't caught up in the swirl, obviously of materialism and um, modern life. I I. I, I guess I'd come from my grandfather was a real icon to me where he was very courtly and he was very noble. And someplace in my heart, I was always searching for that. Yeah. And that's what you found. Yes, absolutely. On an unconscious level. You know, um, so Ajay and I had grown up in so many it, it, in so many ways so differently. He grew up, grown up in a palace. I grew up in a small craftsman, um, you know, <laughs> in northeast Los Angeles. But at the end of this end of this, the day, his um, grandfather had been a noble. And my grandfather, through his um, work as the mayor of Chinatown, and, you know, he was a wealthy businessman and very altruistic, he had been a noble, too. And I always felt fallen. And so did Ajay. And that's where that's one of the places where we met emotionally. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot. Again, if you haven't read Where the Peacocks Sing, we want to encourage you to do that because there is a lot of discussion of families and backgrounds. Some of the stuff you talk about is tough. So you teach memoir, you write memoir. How do you decide, like, okay, family, I'm going to open up the box of family secrets and, you know, maybe take a look at some pretty painful things. Your dad suffered from a mental illness that obviously affected you and your five siblings and your mother deeply. You write about that in the book. Uh, You've got (laughs) in-laws that you're writing about. God bless you. Uh, So how do you decide to do that? And then what do you say to your family? Like, here it comes. You know, that is such a core question. Um, I would say you don't exactly decide to write a memoir. It's really something that calls you and you really don't want to write it. In fact, I have this funny story where I, um, so I was working at People Magazine when I first started um, mining this, um, mining this book. And um, I got very lucky. I put together a proposal and I couldn't take it at people anymore. It was just 24-7, very stressful. I had a, 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 a toddler. and You were um, an entertainment reporter at People, I right? was an entertainment, yeah. back with those stilettos and ball yeah. gowns. <laughs> <laughs> just a different terrain. And um, I, put, I sent the proposal out through my agent, and I decided, you know what? I've done this proposal. Maybe I can quit. 
So I, I got lucky. I took a buyout. And um, a week later, my book sold. Wow. So I actually had a year severance, <laughs> plus health care, all that sort of stuff, a year to write. And my book sold. I got in advance. Which is like a dream scenario, by yes. the way. You would yes. think so. But that's right. like a Hollywood movie, right? Yeah. There. yeah. You would think so. But my book was due in a year. And after one year, I had exactly 50 pages done. Oh, that's wow. bad. It was really that bad. That sounds awful. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of pressure, Allison. It was a huge amount of pressure. And the reason why I only had 50 pages done was because I was so desperately afraid of putting the story out there. And it had to do with telling my mother's story. You know, she was so unhappy in her marriage to my marriage to my father and um and also telling my story story with Mrs. Singh. So um your mother-in-law. Yes, my mother-in-law. In your book your future mother-in-law because you're not married yet, but yes. And um so to be honest, I actually thought maybe I wasn't going to write this book and I kept checking my email thinking that my publisher St. Martin's was basically going to fire me. Right. Give us the money back. <laughs> exactly. Really? So at one point about a year into things I told the Jay I said I don't think I can do this. I said I think we're going to have to give the money back. And he said hold on for a second. And he he went up to, he went over to the computer and looked up our bank account and he came back and he said you're going to have to write the book. <laughs> 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 so, so okay. So he did know what to do. He 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 fired up Skype and he called Mrs. Singh, my mother-in-law, who I was most afraid of writing about because I knew in 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 really truly mining the story, I had to write about our relationship and how at the beginning we really did not like each other and. In the middle of our, our relationship, we really did not like each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and by the end, we, you know, we came to some sort of detente, but um, it wasn't a lot more than that. So he he called he called her on Skype, and um, she had already had the seed planted by my evil sister-in-law Kamala. <laughs> yeah. Kamala um, claimed that she had re read the entire book, even though it was 50 pages long at that point. And she told Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Sung that they came off like fools. Oh, oh really? wow. It was crazy. That and is not Kamala, helpful. That's worse than anything she did in the book. <laughs> yeah. Oh, believe me, I was being very kind to Kamala in the book. <laughs> She's quite a, a, a beautiful character. Amazing. But anyway, so um, Mrs. Singh asked Jay over um, Skype. She said, is it true, Aju? Does Allison make us out to look like fools? And um, Jay said, well, you know, um, Mama, um, you are a complicated character in the book, and um, she does. Allison does mind the relationship, but by by the end of the book, I think you see that um, that you have a really deep, loving, forever relationship. And then he told me that she paused, and she um, she said something. And Ajay came back. He, he he said goodbye to his mother, and I said, "So what happened, Ajay? Um, you know, is she angry?" And he said, well, you know, she said, you know, Aju, I understand. I am not angry. I know that in order to, to sell a book these days, you have to spice things up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you're off the hook. Oh, so with that, I was able to write the book. So thank you, Mrs. Singh. <laughs> <laughs> well, she is a spicy character, as is your sister-in-law in the book. You travel from Hong Kong. You discover that your <laughs> beloved... 
unbeknownst to you, is a prince of sorts. He is a prince, and he comes with a palace, but it's just a falling down 100-room palace. Yes, correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, you know what? You're gentle in the book. Like, when I spoken to you in the four, before, you're like, oh, it was falling down. But then in the book, I'm like, well, it sounds a little magical. I mean, it is magical, but it needs repairs. It's magical. It's not full-time magical. It's okay. like a weekend <laughs> magical with a lot of mosquito repellent. But... Uh-huh. And and you have to shower. There's a bucket system. It's like just you're just pouring cans of water over your head, basically. Is that right? Absolutely. In fact, we we thought at one point that maybe we could pull off having our wedding there. But then we realized that everyone would have to bring their own uh, plate settings, their own silverware, their own chairs, and their own hot water. So (laughs) we decided Palm Springs instead. (laughs) But you did eventually sort of fall in love with the palace and with India. How how did that happen? Again, it you know, it wasn't anything by design. I think I was uh, so one thing I really tried to do in the book was to explore this confrontation. I I growing up in this really competitive Chinese American family where you know, one side of our family was really rich and we weren't. There was a huge amount of hierarchy. And materialism. Yeah, that was fascinating to read about. The family buffets. Oh, yes. The competitive Chinese family buffets. I, I, we're from a big competitive Irish Catholic family, but nothing like your buffets, <laughs> man. That is really <laughs> funny. So, so you know, um, materialism had always been sort of rammed down my throat, even though I knew that my true values were were not those. And so funny enough, I went to Hong Kong and it was amplified because this is a place where it, there's the highest per capita um, number of Rolls Royces. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, yeah. And you'll see a fully Prada decked out woman in, again, in her stilettos and her, you know, fancy $2,000 um, sunglasses um, walking past a monk with a begging bowl. Yeah. So the, the contrasts were really quite remarkable. And this can't help but resonate in your heart. And you start to think about what is the meaning of life? What is the value of life? And I think what I tried to capture in my book is this question, like, what is wealth? What is value? What does it mean to have a home? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that comes through. It's it's really touching um, and, and funny. I think that surprised me. Now, you teach memoir, and I have a lot of people ask me about memoir. They come up to me and they say, Lee, and I want you to help me write your my life story. And I say, I don't write memoir conveniently. I, it's the perfect, the perfect response to that, like, could you write my life story? No, I can't. But I know someone who teaches memoir. Maybe I have recommended your class several times. But, um, you know, structure seems really important in memoir. I mean, it's important in any writing, but particularly important in memoir. And you go back and forth really seamlessly. You delve into your personal memory, you know, your family memories, and then you're back in Hong Kong, and then you're sort of flash forwarding. How did you think about the structure of this book when you were putting it together? Does that come naturally, or was that something you really, <laughs> like, fixed it all in post-production, as they say? Well, you know what? I really think that 95% of writing a book is, is figuring out the structure. So in this case, I actually had no idea what I was writing when I first started writing. And I think that's when the the deepest, most unconscious stuff comes out. So I basically just started writing memories of, of um, Hong Kong and India and trying to piece them together. And so what became clear um, towards the end was that I wanted to start on the biggest moment when everything changed, when I knew I wasn't in Kansas anymore. And so it turned out that that 
that was the first morning I'd spent at Mokimpur when all the peacocks were flying around me, and I had no idea where in the world I was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was. It's a strong opening, and then from you there, didn't even know that peacocks could fly <laughs> in that conversation. I, I mean, you who knew? You live in Pasadena, <laughs> yeah. and you know what peacocks are like in yeah, Pasadena. We do. They're we have flocks of peacocks. Useless, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, they're mean and nasty. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And we had a peacock uh, flock in our neighborhood until someone shot the peacock. <gasps> Really? And so the peahens just terrible. died off. It's terrible, Julie, but neighbors silently cheered because they are like they're noisy and they're messy and they're mean and they fly up to your roof and then they like sit there all day. And so someone that's that's what not so, these magical Indian peacocks. No, but I have to say, Leon, two words, bad karma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although it reminds me though, with memoir, I feel like you could keep rewriting your memories forever and ever. Like, how do you know? when you're done? Literally, someone has to rest them from your hands. That's what happened with me. I, I, I blew my deadline so many times. I think I took instead of one year, maybe three years, and then I had another year for um, for um, revisions. So it was crazy. I mean, to write about an eight-year period over the course of four years, five years. <laughs> so no, I someone literally has to take it away from you. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think it's, I don't know how you feel. I, I if you've ever considered writing your memoirs, but I think it's one of the hardest tasks a writer can face. Oh, there's no way I would write a memoir. Yeah, I don't want to <laughs> get there's that. There's no way we would let Leanne write yeah. a memoir because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, our collection. We might come out like Kamala. In yeah. The- yeah, no, that's I don't want to go that deep. No, I like going deep on shallow topics. That's where I am most comfortable. I think I need to learn more from you, Leon. Because... <laughs> no, it's true. Just keep it. I mean, I like to talk about other people's lives in an interesting way, but I don't really want to mm, divulge that much. <laughs> like, You're not going to dig that deep? I'm not doing the italics inner thoughts like you did. No way. Well, I have to tell you, so speaking of food and, and, and um, what's happening next, I've I've been writing a food memoir set in Mokampur. Oh, my gosh. Now I'm psyched. <laughs> well, I tell you, it's been really slow going, and part of that is I kind of don't want to go back there. It's so painful, and and but at the same time, there's so much there's so much opportunity for fun, yeah, and something interesting to happen. But it is really tough going. All right, we just have a few minutes left, but can I ask a couple of follow ups? Absolutely. Okay, so you're still married. <laughs> <laughs> I probably so should know the answer to that question before <laughs> well, I ask it. Well, I have to tell you that only in Southern California do I get that question. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone else really? assumes like, you still with that guy. <laughs> well, after you pray love, all of our lives were shattered, but that That's whole true. thing fell apart. So, so still married, still married. So you have a beautiful daughter, sixteen-year-old daughter. Wow. Okay. Uh, mother-in-law still with us. Thank goodness. Yes, Mrs. Singh, who I I, I now call Indu, she's still alive. Unfortunately, uh, Ajay's dad just died this past year. So oh, That's okay. very sad. I'm sorry. He was a very solid character in the book. Now, how about Nigel, the Brit, who, who gave you the fabulous 30th birthday party, and then you dumped him? Nigel. Do you, I mean, what happened? I, I owe a lot to Nigel. Yeah. I, you know, he. one consolation is he was the most amazing reader. I mean, he always had a book in his hand. Um, so if he reads this book, I hope he enjoys it. I hope he enjoys being immortalized because he was an amazing guide to expat Hong Kong. So now he... Um, what I understand is he's moved back to his hometown in 
Essex, I want to say. And um, he has an English wife. He lives in a beautiful, rambling mansion. And he has two kids. So I think we both um, enjoyed happy endings. Okay, excellent. That's good. I mean, you know, he wasn't such a bad guy. No. He just wasn't in it for the long haul. Yes. Yeah, correct. that's that's what I, and you know, that's good to know. You suss that out, got the great 30th birthday party out of him. And then you know, not every not every relationship is forever. And um <laughs> Do you hear that girls? Yeah. 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 <laughs> but you know, there's a, a place in my heart for Nigel. Yeah, he was an important Oh yeah, ours too. Yeah, an important <laughs> stepping stone. I liked it. So the next book is a is a food memoir. Hey, do you go back to India regularly? Is the palace still in the family? Okay, so here's an interesting story. Okay. It, it definitely is. But the last time um, we went there, Ajay um, didn't say anything, but I could see him becoming more and more agitated as we drove up. And we finally got there, and there were three wings, as you know from the book. Yeah. One entire wing had been destroyed by a crazy <sighs> rascal uncle who sold the 200-year-old bricks or 100-year-old bricks for $2,000. So sadly... Okay, that's Wow, that's nuts. a thing that happened? That's, <laughs> that's, Stay tuned for part two. You just two. dismantled a third of the house for... Wow. Rascal is a kind word. <laughs> and the, the food memoir is called Cooking for the Maharani. Um, four continents, six iconic chefs, and one tall glass of revenge. Oh, okay. I hope that duck recipe is not in there. <laughs> Yeah. There is a little bit of food poisoning in the book. So. Okay. <laughs> okay. That, I admired that. You were like, I'm going to make that duck for Thanksgiving. And <laughs> I wow, know. That was that kills a wonderful me. Christmas story. Yeah. 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 Allison, thank you. Oh, wait, wait. Julie, you had a question about Allison's name. Yes. Allison, your name. Why Why? Why the order? Allison Singhi. Well, I'm a little embarrassed to tell you, but it was a clerical error at one of the newspapers I'd written for. Obviously, it's supposed to be Allison G. Singh, if I'm to use my married name. Um, but someone messed it up, and it had a ring to it, so I kept it. Oh, that's a good <laughs> I story. I love that answer. All right. Perfect I, answer. Thank you. Yeah, well, you're I'm glad I asked that question because <laughs> yeah. I was puzzled on the on the cover of your book. Yeah. Yeah, we had that discussion before in pre-production. Why is her name sort of backwards? There's no hyphen. Sort of took your husband's name, but not, <laughs> not really. really. It's a good it's that's a good solution. <laughs> it is a good solution. Okay, where the peacock sing is the book A Palace of Prince and the Search for Home. You can find it on Amazon if you haven't read it. It's a wonderful travel summer read. Like you really feel like you're taken to places. And I love books like that. So Allison, thank you so much for being here on Satellite Sisters. Thank you so much for having me and for reading my book. I really appreciate it. I know. I appreciate it, too, when people <laughs> read my book. So <laughs> I appreciate that, too. We all read it. Stay. Just sit while we wrap the show. Don't don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. Okay. But, oh, we have the to-do list. We have a to-do list. So, uh, okay. Time for the to-do list. Time to go. Leanne, what do you have going on this week? Uh, oh, boy. I wish you hadn't started with me. I, uh, <laughs> okay. Let's go to I'll Julie. Start, Julie. I'll start with me. What's on I your to-do list? I am packing my Dagny Dover bag. I'm going on assignment. Urban Nana. Heading to Brooklyn to help take care of my two granddaughters that are there. Oh, when do okay. you go? 
Uh, I'm going to go up um, on uh, uh, Thursday. Top secret, Leanne. Okay. Top secret. Sorry. No, no follow-up no follow questions. questions. I was going to give out details. No follow-up questions. I just didn't know you were going. Okay. okay here's what's on my oh, to-do it's list. the same on mine. Go for okay. it, Liz. Okay. I'm voting. Yeah. It's primary day here in California. Yeah. So don't forget to vote if you're listening to this on Tuesday. We have 32 candidates in our Senate race. We have 28 candidates in our governor's race. And we have five ballot measures. And, Julie, one of the ballot measures is about ballot measures. So there you go. You just got to love California. Demo- I'll keep you busy all day, Liz. Democracy rules here in California. Lee, and you're voting also. I'm voting yes. also. That's my to-do list. Uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors for today's show. We'd like to thank StoryWorth. We'd like to thank Dagny Dover. We'd like to thank Nectar Mattresses and Away Luggage. Thanks to you for supporting Satellite Sisters. And thanks, Satellite Sisters, for supporting the people that support us. We'd like to thank our engineer, Sergio Enriquez, and the folks here at the Wondery Sunset Studio. Allison, thank you for coming in and braving the traffic on Sunset. (laughs) A lot of good billboards today, though, on Sunset, though, for Emmy Emmy voting season. Uh, Hey, sisters, have a great week. You too, Liam. You too, Liam. And don't forget, call your Satellite Sisters.